Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our 17th episode of Reading During Recess. I'm Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. So today on our 17th episode, we are going to be talking about the American classic Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Which I had confused with Little House in the Big Woods, which I had read several times as a child. So when you first said that we were going to do this, I was like, I'm tight. I own it. I've already read it. I'm going to get a super late start to it. Come to find out, completely different book. <laughs> which makes sense, because they're different words and all, but you know. <laughs> I just heard the first two, and I was like, done and done. Yeah, Little House. I mean, it's the same characters. Same basic principles. Exactly. This book, Little House on the Prairie, was published in 1935, like I said, by Laura Ingalls Wilder. So this book is, there's a lot to talk about here. We'll try to cram our discussion into the most time efficient and condensed way possible because, oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. So I first thought about reading this book when we were reading The Birch Bark House, and then I was reading about Mm. The Birch Bark House, which was our last episode by Louise, uh, book by Louise Erdrich. Wonderful book. Highly recommend. Louise Erdrich's Birch Bark House has been talked about as a kind of alternate perspective or antidote to Little House on the Prairie because it's set in the same time period, roughly, but it is from the perspective of a Native American family, specifically an Ojibwe family. That alternate perspective is very important because while this book, Little House on the Prairie, has been very important and influential in children's literature and American literature and also in um, America's mythologies about themselves and manifest destiny. It's also extremely racist. Yeah. Against Native Americans and also some racist, some anti-black racism sneaks its way in as well. So shall we give them a little bit of about the author? Yes. So let's start with the lady herself, Miss Laura Ingalls Wilder. (laughs) The man, the myth, the legend. (laughs) She was born on February 7th, 1867 in Lake Pepin, Wisconsin, and died on February 10th, 1957 in Mansfield, Missouri. She was... That is an extremely long life for the time. A very long life, especially considering how hard it was for so much of it. Yeah, damn. She was an American author of children's fiction. She also did write some columns and essays for adults, though. But she's obviously best known for the Little House series, which is based on her own youth in the American Midwest. So Laura Ingalls grew up in a family that moved uh, frequently from one part of the American frontier to the other. Her father moved the family by covered wagon from Minnesota to Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, and Dakota Territory. They traveled a lot. Yeah, so this family's constantly moving it's framed a lot in the books as pa has a wandering spirit and there's always opportunities and there's so much beautiful country to see and to explore an element of adventure yeah and in this one primarily driven by (laughs) fleeing other white settlers and the impact of other white settlers yeah they'll like be somewhere and then like more white people will show up and pa's like we gotta go they're ruining it (laughs) okay well maybe sit with that for like just a moment (laughs) so yes at age 15 laura began teaching in rural schools in 1885 she married almanzo j wilder who also appears as a character in a couple of her books 
So some years later, she started writing for various periodicals, and she contributed to McCall's Magazine and Country Gentleman, and was a poultry editor for the St. Louis Star, which I'm assuming, like, specifically columns related to poultry. No, I think actually the contributors (laughs) were poultry. Like, I think they were written by (laughs) various chickens. I'm imagining her behind the desk like, this is nothing! We can't use this! I like this. That's good. I like that a lot. (laughs) But we won't ask any more questions. And for 12 years, she was also uh, the home editor for the Missouri Ruralist. (laughs) Yeah. What I wouldn't give to read the Missouri Ruralist. (laughs) She wrote a lot of columns and such about farm life and like advice for like how to make your chickens prosperous. and And she'd know. Yeah. That's she works pretty closely with some of them mm-hmm. she's i mean they're her colleagues really in close personal exactly friends. how do i make my chickens prosper do you know i haven't read the missouri ruralist oh so. devastating we had a chicken one time i grew up with chickens uh, a raccoon pulled off one of her wings through the fence but she lived and then she was she was like mine I don't remember what her name was. Uh, Sarah's face right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. So she just had one wing, and she was she was a trooper. She was okay. I'm sorry. Was the wing fully gone, or was it like outside the cage somewhere? It was gone. But we were thinking about like what animal could get its like little hands through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that they, I'll tell you, those little fuckers. They take what they want, and that one wanted her wing. <laughs> Just the one. He said, this will do me nicely. And then he left. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little side note on my life for all you. I'm imagining if you wrote a series like Little House on the Prairie and how upsetting it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of distressing things that have happened on the Hodgson LaRue property. (laughs) Let's continue. So as for her famous series, this was actually prompted by her daughter. And Wilder began writing down her pioneer childhood experiences set in the mid to late 1800s. And in 1932, she published Little House in the Big Woods, which is set in Wisconsin. She wrote Farmer Boy in 1933, a book about her husband's childhood, and published Little House on the Prairie in 1935, reminiscence of her family's stay in what she calls Indian Territory. And then she continued the story of her life in On the Banks of Plum Creek in 1937, By the Shores of Silver Lake in 1939, The Long Winter in 1940, Little Town on the Prairie in 1941, and These Happy Golden Years in 1943. Her books remain in print today, of course, and their popularity was boosted by the success of a television series that ran from 1974 to 1983 that was based on Wilder's stories. Very loosely, we'll get to that. (laughs) so i recently read a really great book um that's written by caroline fraser called prairie fires the american dreams of laura ingalls wilder it was published in 2017 so it's quite recent and it's a biography of laura ingalls wilder and also really a biography of her daughter uh rose lane and because their professional careers were very closely intertwined as rose acted as an editor for all of her mother's manuscripts. Some of the information from this podcast about Laura and Rose Wilder, I'm 
I'm pulling from that book. So if that's something that you would like to learn more about, highly recommend Caroline Fraser's book. It's incredibly well-researched and detailed. It's a, it's big. It was like a 30-hour audiobook. But, you know, it's it actually, it moves quite well. And I'm, like, I'm not even someone who's like especially fascinated in Laura Ingalls Wilde. You know, I'm not like a super fan. Just trying to imagine what a super fan of Laura Ingalls Wilder looks like. Probably wearing a bonnet. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Apparently, um, the TV show was very popular in Spain for a while. Interesting. Yeah. And also... Wow, what an odd demographic to enjoy. I know. So one thing that I learned from the book was that this was one of the books that the U.S. government after World War II was obviously like on the ground in Japan and Germany trying to help rebuild and also control how those governments reformed in the wake of that disaster. And they exported a lot of American goods to these countries. Um, And one of the books that they exported was Little House on the Prairie. And so there actually is a pretty significant Japanese following of Little House on the Prairie. Interesting. All right. So for those of you who have not read Little House on the Prairie or who haven't read it for a while, this book is set in the late 1800s and the novel opens with the Ingalls family who are Ma, Pa, Laura's older sister, Mary, Laura, and baby Carrie, who remains a baby I guess forever? I don't know. She was a baby in Little House in the Big Woods and she's still baby Carrie. Yeah, and I've um I read the book that comes after this one too. I just finished reading on the banks of Plum Creek and she's still a baby. So it's like grow up wow. already. Yeah, come on, Carrie. Like this is getting embarrassing. So <laughs> The family uh, are preparing to make a move from Wisconsin to Kansas that winter, quickly as possible, because Pa feels that the big woods have become too settled, Pa calling the kettle black, and he wants to make the move as quickly as possible before uh, the frozen Mississippi melts. At some point in their journey through the prairie, the family crosses an unusually high creek, and in the most dis- one of the most distressing scenes, they lose their dog, Jack in the water because Pa like won't let him ride in the wagon for whatever reason I don't know it's awful <laughs> I was so unhappy this I um, remember I so I did read this book as a kid and I have very few memories of it really but I remember this part because I was like why does this dog have to walk the entire multi-week trek why yeah. can't he ride in the wagon I guess he's dirty, but so are they. Yeah, come on. These people haven't bathed in ages. I remember distinctly from Little House in the Big Woods that they bathe on Saturdays so that they're clean on Sunday. All this to say, he gets lost in the water, and they're like, well, he definitely drowned. And Pa's like, well, this sucks, you know? And I was like, this was so preventable. But in any event, the family spends the night camped out on the prairie. Pa is thrilled because he's coming back with lots of game, and he's like, this country is full of animals. This is terrific. And Laura is frightened because she hears wolves howling and sees a pair of eyes in the darkness. Lo and behold, it turns out to be, drumroll please, Jack, who survived the flooded creek. Hooray! And they probably still don't let him ride in the wagon. Yeah. Man, they're like, if I were Jack, I would have just cut my losses. Yeah, no, but like this blows. I'm not gonna hang out with these dorks anyway. (laughs) 
So throughout the journey, the family remarked many times about the possible implications of their move to what they call Indian country. And Ma, at several points, expresses distaste for who she calls Indians, but who we from here on out are going to name as the Osage people who are already living in the area. And at one point, Laura asks, she says, this is Indian country, isn't it? What did we come to their country for if you don't like it (laughs) or if you don't like them? And Ma's like, that's enough, Laura. I want to actually read that part because it's like, I think, kind of the most important question in the book. It's a good one. One of the things that's interesting about this book is that it is very racist. Going into it, I was kind of expecting there to be not very much conversation about the Osage people. And then when there is discussion of them, it's just kind of flatly, straightforwardly racist. And that's true. But one thing that I was kind of surprised by was how much Laura as a character interrogates her family's presence in this land and is really interested in learning more about these people, even though her preconceptions and her attempts at learning more are very stereotyped and offensive. But yeah, I mean, she is kind of like probing at this this myth mm-hmm. of manifest destiny and white supremacy. And I don't think it's fair to say that she's she's definitely not critiquing it, but it's interesting to see a child trying to understand how this is working and how this is fair, how her family is justifying it as fair. And it's interesting to me that that's something that adult Laura Ingalls Wilder decades later still remembered and held on to because I think it would have been mm-hmm. easy for her to just kind of adopt the very blanket, straightforward, simple, white supremacist ideology of her parents. But she remembers being a little confused and uncomfortable. And that like little nugget of friction, I think, is really interesting. It is. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that either. And it comes up a couple of times in the novel. Mm -hmm. This is the first instance where it's just her and Ma having this conversation. But Pa gets involved a few times later. Yeah. Laura, several times throughout the book, talks about wanting to see Native Americans, who she calls Indians, and wanting to see an Osage baby, which she refers to as a papoose. That's a word that's used a lot in the novel. And a little note on the word papoose, because it's used a lot. Papoose is a term that's borrowed from the Narragansett, meaning baby, and is often referring to a baby carried on the back or a type of wooden baby carrier worn on the back. However, over time, white people began to use it to refer to any Native American or First Nations baby, regardless of tribe or heritage, which is how it's used in Little House on the Prairie. Uh, Pa says that a papoose is, quote, a little brown Indian baby. And even though some First Nations people remember the term as one of endearment, many others remember it quite differently. And uh, the Oxford English Dictionary notes that the term is now generally regarded as offensive. So just a little disclaimer about why we're using that word, even though it's not really the correct word, but it's the word that's used all the time in this book. Laura talks a lot about wanting to see a papoose, and she says towards the beginning of the novel, once they've got to what they call quote-unquote Indian country, where is a papoose, Ma? Laura asked. Don't speak with your mouth full, Laura, said Ma. So Laura chewed and swallowed, and she said, I want to see a papoose. Mercy on us, Ma said. Whatever makes you want to see Indians, we will see enough of them, more than we want to. I wouldn't wonder. They wouldn't hurt us, would they? Mary asked. Mary was always good. She never spoke with her mouth full. 
No, Ma said, don't get such an idea into your head. Why don't you like Indians, Ma? Laura asked, and she caught a drip of molasses with her tongue. I just don't like them, and don't lick your fingers, Laura, said Ma. This is Indian country, isn't it? Laura said. What did we come to their country for if you don't like them? And then this is like a very, it's not in dialogue, but it's a very revealing paragraph. Ma said that she didn't know whether this was Indian country or not. She didn't know where the Kansas line was. But whether or no, the Indians would not be here long. Pa had word from a man in Washington that the Indian territory would be open to settlement soon. It might already be open to settlement. They could not know because Washington was so far away. Yeah, so a really important um, question that Laura's asking, and her mother is just completely dismissive of it. That's a an ongoing theme for... Pa is a little bit more forthcoming, but... Not much. And the mentality is still strong. And we'll get to that later. So Sarah, where are they now in their journey? Sometime later, the Ingalls come to an open space of land near the Verdurgris River. Pa notes that there are no trails nearby, and the family decides to claim the land and build their home. Ma's foot is injured while building the house. And so Pa enlists the help of their neighbor, a bachelor named Mr. Edwards, who has settled about two miles away. And the two men agree to help each other build their houses. And the family moves in once the house is almost entirely complete, minus a roof and a floor. I personally consider a roof. I mean, like a roof in particular, a floor I can understand, but a roof I think is an integral part of any house. Like, I don't know if you can call it a house without a roof. No, I think it's like a yard, right? It's just like a fence. Yeah, good job. You built a fence, Pa. (laughs) And you've, you know, (laughs) crushed your wife's foot. And for what? This big-ass fence? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the reason they, uh, the reason they're like, well, we need to pause is because they have, uh, they need to build a stable for their two horses. And one of the horses gives birth to a mule. So that's a little secret she's been keeping. (laughs) (laughs) So Pa is working quickly to finish the stable because there are wolves in the area. And one exciting night, he comes riding back um, incredibly fast, um, saying that he'd had an encounter where I guess he just kept his cool, but had been surrounded by gray wolves. And that night, the wolves form a ring around the house in a very stressful scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're gone the next morning. In what is undoubtedly a core memory for all three kids. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, too, that in the TV show Little House on the Prairie, there was like a hour and a half long pilot that was um, basically like a feature length film. But it was just Little House on the Prairie, the first like this book, just this book and quite faithful to it. It's the Little House on the Prairie TV show from the 70s. But that was the first episode, and they do the wolf scene. But, like, they're very clearly not wolves, you know? They're, like, German (laughs) shepherds. (laughs) Amazing. Honestly, I'd be be fairly stressed out if German shepherds formed a ring around my house. And started howling. Whose dogs are these? (laughs) Yeah. Who owns all these German shepherds? Wow. Go, girl, give us nothing. They couldn't have found, like, any wolves. I don't like, know. Like, I know that there were companies at the time who were Well, you know, wolves used to be super animals. duper endangered. That's right. Yeah, but they almost were, like, like eradicated um, yeah. by people like Pa. Yep. 
Pa, who is so offended by white settlers showing up and doing away with the various animals. And he's like, that's fine. We'll just move somewhere else and do away with more of those animals. Anyway, so one afternoon while Pa is out hunting, two Osage men come to the home. And during this episode, the two older sisters are outside and Jack at this point is chained up and the girls talk about letting him loose in the hopes that he'll kill the two men. But Pa has told them multiple times to leave him chained, so fortunately they do. And inside, Ma feeds the two men, clearly out of fear, not out of hospitality, and gives them cornmeal and a lot of Pa's tobacco. And when the Osage men are gone, Ma is clearly very shaken up by the whole incident. But Pa is unconcerned and tells them essentially that the Osage won't be a threat if they don't feel threatened. So this is Laura's first encounter with the native people in the area, and it is the descriptions of the two men are, I would say, like animalistic. So mm-hmm. Ingalls writes, then she, Laura, looked over her shoulder where Jack was looking and saw two naked wild men coming one behind the other on the Indian trail. Mary, look, she cried. Mary looked and saw them too. They were tall, thin, fierce-looking men. Their skin was brownish-red. Their heads seemed to go up to a peak, and the peak was a tuft of hair that stood straight up and ended in feathers. Their eyes were black and still and glittering like snakes' eyes. So obviously that language is... I mean, it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> Comparing someone's eyes to snake eyes. That's the ver- That's like an ongoing theme in this book. When the descriptions aren't like meant to invoke savagery sometimes they trend more toward like the noble savage thing of this like intense stillness and strange Mm -hmm. inhuman stillness their faces were bold and fierce and terrible their black eyes glittered high on their foreheads and above their ears where hair grows these wild men had no hair but on top of their heads was a tuft of hair stood straight up it was wound around with string and feathers stuck out of it And this sets the tone for the rest of the descriptions in the novel. Ma sits down and trembles. She says, I'm thankful they're gone. Laura wrinkled her nose and says, they smell awful. I was kind of surprised by Pa's reaction when he came back. I sort of thought we were going to have a scene of the white supremacy of like the the protectiveness of Mm -hmm. the white woman from the savage man. Mm -hmm. But Pa is casual about it which surprised me yeah i mean i think it was better than the alternative oh but he he says the main thing is to be on good terms with the indians we don't want to wake up some night to a band of the screeching de dev and we know he's going to say devils uh there's a dash ma cuts him off it is interesting because it's very much framed as a threat that has kind of entered this sanctity of domestic white womanhood, you know, that they've come yeah. and paws away, and the only people who are home is Ma, who we already know is afraid of them, and the two girls. And baby Carrie is inside with her. Yeah. And um, the girls talk a lot when they're considering letting Jack loose about what, he, what they might be doing um, to Ma and Carrie. Right. The TV slash film version of Little House on the Prairie from the 70s. Again, the pilot episode is like an hour and a half long, and it's just this book, Little House on the Prairie. And that scene, they really amp up like the the sexual fear 
of mm. these two naked men entering the house oh and they like touch Ma and stroke her face and it's oh. it's really gross and it's definitely meant to touch on that that white supremacist fear of this sanctity of white womanhood I mean anytime the Osage people show up in this book they're showing up as a trope as either something to be feared or something kind of tragic to be admired but not understood yeah again very like animalistic right so pa finishes building the house including a fireplace and a well um the well scene is very exciting because he almost inadvertently kills their racist neighbor unfortunately unsuccessfully Actually, the racist neighbor almost kills himself. He forgets about the perils of digging extremely deep into the earth and various gas, whatever. I don't know. I was just so excited when I thought he was going to (laughs) die. But there's always next time. We'll talk more about the Scots. Yeah. Long story short, they are just the worst. Yeah. So Pa and the girls visit a recently abandoned Osage camp where Laura and Mary collect beads. And this leads to one of those scenes that just sums up Laura's entire childhood and existence. I mean, like, if anything's going to make you feel bad for Laura, frankly, it's Ma and how deeply they have instilled these, like, (laughs) these values in her because everything she does is naughty. So they find these beads and they're so excited because these kids have not a lot, you know, um, certainly compared to, They have very little. Exactly. I'm very excited to talk about their Christmas and how fast they were. But anyway, yes, they have nothing. From what it seems, they have, like, almost no toys whatsoever, including, like, any, you know, paper dolls or anything like that. Yeah. So they're super excited about the beads, and they bring them home. And Mary, who is exhausting, is like, Carrie can have my beads. And then Laura's like, oh, fuck, because she knows what's going to happen next. And Ma, like, pins her with a stare, and Laura's like, Carrie can have my beads too. And Ma's like, oh, my good unselfish girls. Uh, like, Carrie doesn't want the beads. You shouldn't give and, a baby beads. Yeah, no, that's the worst idea ever. And Ma strings them on some string and makes them into a necklace, which Carrie can't wear yeah. because she's either going to break it or strangle herself with it. Poor Laura is sitting there and says something along the lines of like, but still, Laura has the very naughty thought that she would have liked to keep the beads. It's like, this poor girl, the complex she's developing, who knows what's going on in Mary's head? And that's everything. She's, She's naughty for tapping her feet on the floor of the wagon. She's naughty for missing Jack when she thinks he's dead. They repeat multiple times throughout the book that children should be seen and not heard. They're not allowed to talk while, like, at the dinner table at all. Not just while they're eating. Just, like, they don't get to talk. <laughs> I forgot about that. The Ingalls really said, no fun allowed. <laughs> yeah, and she always frames herself as kind of the opposite to Mary, who has, who's described as having these angelic golden curls and is unselfish and kind and... Laura clearly feels like she struggles much more with that. 
But Little House in the Big Woods leans into it like heavily. And at that point, Laura is Laura is like five in Little House in the Big mm-hmm. Woods. Every there's this whole scene where they go into a, a store and everyone like comments on Mary's beautiful hair. And Laura's like, but no one said anything to Laura because her hair was ugly and brown and the color of dirt. And I remember reading that as a kid and being like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm aware that this is an oral medium. Both Sarah and I have brown hair. <laughs> Roughly the, the color, color of dirt. dirt, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's, she clearly has some sort of complex about her and her sister. You know, it's interesting. I'm just not putting two and two together that, like, I wonder if adult Laura, retrospectively, is kind of applying this because of the tropes that we use to, like, sanctify disabled people because mary eventually goes blind and is blind oh that's not just in the that happens in the no it happens in real life and it happens it happens in um the book after so after this one is plum creek and then one after that is silver lake and mary is blind in silver lake so i wonder if it also has to do with that idea of like this kind of like angelic disabled person (laughs) Tiny Tim figure. Exactly. God bless us, everyone. Yeah, there's a great scene in Little House in the Big Woods where she just hauls off and slaps Mary. (laughs) It's like Mary says something along the lines of like, I don't care. I don't know. I have golden hair. I don't. (laughs) And Laura just, she just gives her one. And then her dad hits her with a belt and the whole thing is very, I am eternally grateful to not have been a child at that time period yeah do you know they weren't allowed to do anything on sunday like literally nothing they weren't allowed to play they weren't allowed to talk they literally just that's how they keep holy the lord's day is by doing absolutely nothing and at one point laura starts like playing with jack in little house in the big woods and has to like sit in a chair and get yelled at anyway so yeah laura beads devastating Ma praises her for giving beads to a baby, which anyone knows is a terrible idea. Long story short, poor Laura. Mm-hmm. But the entire family is headed for a rough time. <laughs> yeah. So the summer weather brings mosquitoes, and the family becomes sick with what they refer to as fever and ague. They're not aware of the fact and don't know for a long, many decades later, I think. Do they realize that what they had was malaria from the mosquitoes? There's a lot of different theories floating around about what caused the illness, including watermelon. Ma leans into that one big time. Yeah, I feel like Ma would be an anti-vaxxer, don't you? Oh, for sure. And then Pa brings home an entire watermelon and eats it all by himself. Pa's vibes are, like, kind of chaotic. Yeah. I wish he weren't a raging racist. There's still He's a about- very good father. yeah. He's kind of the antidote to, I don't know, Ma's coldness at times. You're definitely, he's definitely written to be incredibly sympathetic. There are, he does have lots of wonderful qualities about him. Laura Ingalls Wilder, the real Laura, said that she wrote the book specifically as like a love letter to her father to preserve her memories with him. 
So they, um, the family has malaria. They're too weak to take care of themselves. Um, but by a, a stroke of great luck, they are fortunately visited by Dr. Tan, who is a black doctor who works with the local Osage people. He comes to their house and treats them and brings them all back from the brink of death. And he's also, I believe, the first black person Laura has ever met, which, of course, offers yes. another opportunity for her to be racist in her descriptions. But fall comes and Pa leaves for Independence, which is uh, the closest town, and the rest of the family are anxious without him, but they get visited regularly by Mr. Edwards and the Scots, who suck so hard. (laughs) And when Pa does come back, he's brought glass for the windows. This is hugely exciting, just to give you some idea of how dull life is around here. But yeah, you can feel the tension at any time when Pa is not around. It sort of leads back to that chapter where Ma and the girls are visited by the Osage men. And you can tell they feel very unmoored without him. It makes you wonder, why are they here? Yeah, exactly. You're not having a good time. Pa is, okay, Pa is so chaotic. Pa is having the best time all the time. <laughs> so I can understand why Pa wants to be here. Because, like, he's driven by I don't know what. I mean, a healthy dose of manifest destiny complex and racism, among other things. But Ma and the girls, I'm like, what, what is this for? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting because you have Pa as this complicated character because on the one hand, he's a very loving father, a very loving husband, a very generally very capable, hands-on kind of guy who, yeah, you what know, can't he do? You know, just builds houses all the time, but so many, you know, just this entire series is just them having various failures after another and him being like, "All right, we got to go." <laughs> He remains remarkably good-natured throughout this whole thing, though. Like, I'm yeah. just thinking oh, about yeah. how pissed my dad would be if he... No, he, he like, is. like, oh, well. <laughs> oh, jinkies. <laughs> oh, jinkies. <laughs> but yeah, so he does have some really wonderful traits. But then also it's like the bigger questions. It's, you know, like, why are you bringing your family into a area where... First of all, you have no legal right to be, which turns out to be a big problem. Literally, yeah. Um, I mean, you have no moral right to it, but also no legal right. Right. And your family is afraid to be there. They feel incredibly unsafe anytime you're not there, and the nature of your work requires that you not be there. And also, you made the decision to settle like 40 miles away from the nearest town, so your girls can't go to school. Your wife can't have literally any friends. Like... Wow, I didn't even think about that. Oh my god, Ma's life sucks. Ma's life is awful. Wow, Ma speaks so little, and when she does, it's usually, oh, Charles, or something racist, so sometimes (laughs) I forget that Ma is a person, but, like, I was just struck with a bolt of empathy. Yeah. Can you imagine being stuck with three kids in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and you're terrified of everything around you? No. And Ma is, like, fairly capable. Yeah. But there's no indication that she's jazzed to be here for any reason other than that Pa wants to be here. Well, that's, and that's the thing, is, like, it's a completely one-sided, like, he decides what the family does, you know? And I understand that that's mm-hmm. the way that a lot of family dynamics were in the late 1800s, and actually some fam- many families still today have 
the man of the house who gets to make all of these big decisions. But it is sad when you think about like Ma left literally her entire family in Wisconsin with the expectation she would never see them again. Yeah. I remember she gives Pa a letter, in fact, to take to Independence to mail mm-hmm. to them because they say it multiple times. They're like, no one there knows if we're alive or not. Yeah. I'm just saying, Little House in the Big Woods, they have lots of family yeah. nearby. They have cousins and aunts and uncles and friends, and they abandon it all because Pa's like, there's a lot of white people in the area. <laughs> pa would love gentrification if he had only lived to see it (laughs) okay back to business Mm. so we left off with glass for the windows oh boy oh boy so osage men come to visit the house again much more frequently around this time period it's pretty common now for pa and ma and the girls to see who they refer to as indians at one point, Pa eats a silent meal with one of the men who tries to communicate to him in French, but Pa is unable to because Pa only knows one language. And Ma is continuing to express fear and contempt, but Pa maintains that there's not going to be any trouble as long as they treat the men well and keep an eye on Jack. And this leads to the conversation that, kind of an extension of the conversation that Laura and her mother have earlier. Yeah, so Ma sings a song about a, quote, Indian maid who is going down a river. And Laura asks, where did she go? And Ma says, oh, I suppose she went west. That's what the Indians do. Which, I'm sorry, we just have to pause there for a second. I suppose she went west, period. That's what the Indians do, as if they're like migratory birds or something. Yeah, right. You know, they just naturally. But that's go how west. they view them. I know. They interpret them as animals based on the way Laura talks about them. And then Laura says, So why do they do that? Laura asked. Why do they go west? They have to, Ma said. Why do they have to? The government makes them, Laura, said Pa. Now go to sleep. He played the fiddle softly for a while. Then Laura asked, Please, Pa, can I ask just one more question? May I, said Ma. Shut up, Ma. Laura began again. Pa, please, may I? What is it, Pa asked. It was not polite for little girls to interrupt, but of course Pa could do it. And then Laura says, Will the government make these Indians go west? Yes, said Pa. When white settlers come into a country, the Indians have to move on. The government is going to move these Indians further west any time now. That's why we're here, Laura. White people are going to settle all this country. And we get the best land because we get here first and take our pick. Now do you understand? Yes, Pa, Laura said. But, Pa, I thought this was Indian territory. Won't it make the Indians mad to have to... No more questions, Laura, Pa said firmly. Go to sleep. Yeah, so we see there's a limit to Pa's forthright explanations but it's and we'll come back to this because of what happens to the ingles but this notion you know when the white settlers come into a country the indians have to move on because that's the government's job is to to make them move further west and like you said this sort of notion of it being this inherent this is the natural order of things and this is part of an ongoing conversation about why the white settlers have the quote right to the land is this notion that they're doing something with it and this is something that Mr. Scott says and that Mr. Edwards says and Pa says that the Osage people 
are not, quote, doing anything with the land. They're not farming it. They're not making good use of it. So they have no right to it, essentially, is the conversation here. And you can see in this part how deeply, like, Pa feels this, you know, in his bones. We get the best land because we're here first. You're here first! Yeah, what? Pa and Laura always feel like they're just on the edge of understanding. Yes. <laughs> you know? Pa, and we've said this, he's not an unempathetic character or sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. And you can, at so many points in the novel, you feel like he almost has respect for the people living here, but it just never quite carries over. Oh my God. So I think in that way, Laura Ingalls Wilder, who's writing the books, is kind of writing her own perspective because throughout her writings, her her writing about Native Americans kind of lives in the space between admiration and also no qualms about how she participated, how her family participated in a genocide. I mean, what's really interesting is that she writes Laura's character throughout these books as someone who has things in common with the Osage people, who feels a kinship to them. Laura loves the land. She finds the Mm -hmm. land absolutely beautiful. That's something that comes up over and over again in these books is how much she loves the land and loves the animals and the plants. And, and she, I think she feels connected to the Osage people because I think she thinks that they also love the land. And because she's written and framed as kind of naughty a little bit and like a little bit of a rule breaker, a little bit unconventional, not always subscribing to perfect gender roles. Like I think she sees that as kind of adjacent to the ways that the Osage mm-hmm. or Native Americans or how she perceives them to be kind of outside of normative society. She's, yeah, she makes several comments about wanting to be like a little, right, a little quote, Indian child. Yes. Um, and always this thought is naughty. Right. Um, yeah. She's, you know, Ma will say when Laura's being too loud or yelling or screaming, you know, she'll tell her that she sounds like a quote unquote Indian. When Laura is not wearing her sunbonnet, Ma says that you're going to get so brown that you'll look like an Indian. In um, one of the other little house books, Laura says something about how she wishes that she could be an Indian so she didn't have to wear, so she wouldn't have to wear clothes. So it's like obviously a very offensive stereotypical mm-hmm. very dehumanizing very dehumanizing perspective of what it means to be native american but it is interesting that laura seems to kind of align herself with them in certain ways there's also a really fascinating letter that laura wrote when she and almanzo as adults were moving from south dakota to missouri they were crossing there at one point in the journey they're crossing the james river and Laura's writing about it. And I think she writes a letter to her daughter and sends it to her and is talking about how absolutely beautiful the landscape is and how she wishes that she was a poet or a painter so she could recreate it or describe it. And she says, I'm paraphrasing, but she says, if I had been an Indian, I would have scalped a lot more white settlers before I ever left it. Damn. It's so fascinating. In this book, as a little girl, she's actually asking all the right questions. She just doesn't get any of the right answers. 
And it's mm-hmm. frustrating because she's she's a kid asking these questions in the book, but she's an adult writing the book, you know? Exactly. And they're fiction. They're technical. They're technically filed as fiction. Laura says that everything in them is true, but that's not true. There are things that are left out and exaggerated and such. But yeah, it's it's really, it's it's interesting because she's asking the right questions, but she still doesn't get it. <laughs> like adult. Laura Ingalls Wilder mm-hmm. still just doesn't get it. If she nope. did get it, there's no way she would describe those age people in the way she does. No. No, 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 no. So we left off with the creek rising. So winter is here, uh, and unfortunately the creek is rising, and there's no snow, which the girls take to mean that there is definitely not going to be a visit from Santa Claus, who can't travel without snow. And Ma and Pa are like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> they saw an out and they were like tight <laughs> but yes I, I'm assuming what all this means is that with the water so high there's no way for Pa to make any journey to independence independence so the is not... the name of the town yes so the girls are not anticipating presence but of course it would be very naughty to feel any emotion except um, placid joy <laughs> so the girls are, are like we'll have an happy Christmas I guess but that night, Mr. Edwards shows up, having swam the creek, I guess? Yes. He but pulled a Mr. jack. Edwards, yeah. I just find it amazing that Mr. Edwards was like, yes, for Christmas, I will definitely risk my life. For these two um, random girls. So he shows up and with news that he ran into Santa Claus in Independence. And Santa expressed that he is too fat and tired to cross the creek <laughs> to get to i think like that's one of the reasons he gives yeah to visit the girls but good news he gave mr edwards the girls presents and the presents are a tin cup a stick of peppermint candy one small and this is each so each girl gets one of these items a tin cup a stick of peppermint candy a small heart-shaped cake, and best of all, a penny! A penny, which at the time, I guess was really exciting, but I'm like, for what? Like, do you know where you are? What all are you going to do with the penny? But it leads to one of my favorite lines in the book, which is like, imagine having a cup, a candy stick, a little cake, and a penny all your own. <laughs> and I was like, I will imagine no such thing. <laughs> It's such an important scene because you really understand like, oh, they are living in serious poverty. Yeah, which you don't think about a lot because they always have enough to eat and Pa's capabilities allow them to have, you know, a house and relative safety pretty much everywhere they go. But yeah, they have nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you really think about it because her descriptions are always very warm and and loving and, and grateful. Like, gratitude is a really big theme in the books. Yes. But when you actually sit down and think about, like, what they actually have, they don't really eat vegetables. No, you're right. They don't. Um, They eat whatever game Pa is able to get. In the book after this one, they're on the banks of Plum Creek, and they basically eat fish for every meal for months. Fish that Pa catches in the creek. I do. They go to school at one point in, on the banks of Plum Creek because they move to, closer to a town because Ma's like, the girl's got to go to school. I'm going to fucking lose it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually, I really 
like on the banks of Plum Creek. There's a lot less racism. <laughs> That's and, always fun. And it's it's a very sweet, very kind of sad story. But the girls go to school. It's like it's Laura's first time going to school and she's like eight or nine or something. And there's a really sweet scene where Laura and Mary go sit outside during lunch to eat their lunch and it's just bread and butter. And I'm like, that's not, I, I don't know. That's just, it's just really sad. Cause that's, they, they have, first of all, they have to walk three miles to school. And then. God, think about how hungry you'd be. I know. And then all you have is to sit outside with your little lunch pail and eat bread and butter. And anyway, what they spend their, their penny on, they spend one of their pennies on a piece of, on, on some chalk for their slate because they, they need a slate for school and Pa gives them the money for a slate, but they know that it's all his money because he needs to buy new shoes and the slate and new shoes are the same amount of money, but he gives them the money for the slate and just keeps wearing his shoes that have holes in them. And so then they get to the store and the guy's like, all right, so that's like $3 for the slate and like, or however much it was for the slate and another cent for the chalk. And they're like, we don't have any more money. So then they go home, get their penny from Santa, and then take it to the store and, and share it. But Damn. one of the things, like one of the running themes throughout these books, if you pay attention to it, is that farming is really, 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 really hard. And the, the reality is, is that like most homesteaders failed. Something like only 10% of homesteading farms survive for multiple decades, you know, because, I mean, these were people who had, in many cases, very little money, very little resources moving into areas that they did not understand. You know, they didn't really know anything about the ecological world that they were stepping into. And then there would be, they'd have bad luck, you know, like it wouldn't rain. And if you don't have wealth to fall back on, then that can land you in poverty. Like on the banks of Plum Creek, Paw plants wheat and that's like going to be their cash crop and they're so excited once once they harvest the wheat then they're going to buy they're going to be able to pay for all this stuff everything up until that point that they have they bought on credit they and then a plague of grasshoppers comes and destroys all of the wheat for oh, miles God. and it's horrifying these grasshoppers it's like they eat everything like they would eat the handle off a shovel like the wooden handle off oh my a shovel. God. Like they are a plague. It's horrifying. I'm scared. It is scary. And then they have nothing. And after that happens, the girls stop going to school because they only have one pair of shoes. And they know that if they walk in those shoes to and from school, they're going to wear them out. And then they won't have any shoes at all. Oh my God. It's really sad because it's interesting. We think about these as kind of like really, I think a lot of Americans' idea of like Little House on the Prairie and these Little House books is like warm comfort food kind of, of like a simpler, gentler, happier time. Of course, that's a very whitewashed, but they're very whitewashed books. But, you know, I think that there's, we think of them as kind of cozy and beautiful. What's If you think about what's really being described, these people are suffering. Like they are living in true abject poverty and they fail over and over and over again i mean that's why there's so many books in so many different locations because pa keeps failing economically and having to leave and and in real life he often had to leave quickly so that his credit couldn't catch up yeah so his debts wouldn't catch up god 
All right. Wow. Yeah, we got we got way off there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of this is true, and it's important conversations. And again, poor Laura is shamed hideously. No one even says anything, but you can see how deeply this is ingrained. Laura, like, has one lick of her peppermint stick and then comments that Mary was not so greedy and didn't even have one lick of her peppermint stick. I was like, so then what is it for? What? Come on, man. It's not like she shoved the entire thing down her gullet. Like... (laughs) She has one lick, and then she's like, but beautiful, angelic Mary just <laughs> sat there and gazed upon it. Yep. Poor Laura. Anyway, a few nights later, Pa hears screaming in the woods and goes to investigate, uh, assuming that it's the Scots, which would be wonderful. But regrettably, they are fine. But Pa realizes that the scream was the sound of a panther in a treetop. This is apparently something that they run into a lot. I guess that's a mountain lion, right? Must be, yeah. But it really confused me as a child, because again, in Little House in the Big Woods, there's another scene with a, quote, panther. And I was like, man, I really just don't understand what lives out here. <laughs> <laughs> it was like like the thing from the Jungle Book. <laughs> and Pa spends several days hunting it, but runs across an Osage man who communicates to him that he's already killed it. So with the constant threat of death around at all times, Pa once again fucks off for independence in the spring. (laughs) The rest of the family, while he's gone, begin to hear the sound of Osage chanting, and it continues through the night, scaring Ma and the girls. Pa returns with treats and presents and tells them that the sound was, quote, some kind of jamboree. He also tells Ma that there's a rumor that the government plans to move the white settlers out of the Osage territory, which is, of course, upsetting to the Ingalls family. And then Pa... Yeah, that would suck to have the government move you out of your home. (laughs) Yeah. So then one day, there is a prairie fire that is headed to the house, and the family saves the house using water from the well and by plowing a furrow and starting a backfire. Mr. Scott suggests that the Osage started the fire to kill the white settlers, and says the most horrifying and disgusting thing in the entire book, which is the slur, quote, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And the Scots say that, like, more than once, right? They say it at least twice. Oh, yeah. Scots are easily the most openly racist in the book, and they are very, they have a very violent mentality, you know? Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. Yeah. For the next few nights, the family hear loud drums and voices from the Osage camp, along with what Pa tells them are war cries, and he tells them that the Osage are quarreling. And the family then stays awake for several nights, at one point seeing the Osage man who spoke French riding past their house, and they learn later that he's called something in French, soldat du chien? Something means something about being a a great soldier. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's a chief who argued against the killing of the white settlers. So he's kind of presented as like this good, noble, kind Native American. Yeah. Pa says like, well, there's one good Indian. Yeah. Uh, oh my God. Yeah, that that is the only way that you can be a quote, good Indian in this novel is by being very passive mm-hmm. in the loss of your home. It's, it's gross and it's sad. Pa makes a comment when he says that the Osage are quarreling. He's like, maybe they'll fight each other. And Ma's like, oh, Charles, if only they will. You know, again, 
it's, <laughs> yeah. I, like seeing them as as these people as being like animals, you yeah. know, who might tear each other to pieces. Yeah. And again, it's just another infuriating opportunity for Ma to say, oh, Charles, which makes me grit my teeth so hard every mm-hmm. time. So the next morning, I think it's the next morning, or it's not long after, the family come to the door of their house and see what looks like a seemingly endless line of Osage men, and then ultimately further down the line, women and children riding west. And there's this really, again, I keep using the word dehumanizing scene between Laura and her mother, because if you remember, Laura has expressed like multiple times throughout this that she really wants to see a, quote, papoose, an Indian baby, as Pa tells her. And she, when she sees this group of Osage traveling west, the first thing she thinks is that she would like to I'm reading a quote here. Laura looked and looked at the Indian children and they looked at her. She had a naughty wish to be a little Indian girl. Of course, she did not really mean it. She only wanted to be bare naked in the wind and the sunshine and riding one of the gay little ponies. Of course, she did not really mean it. Mm-hmm. Again, like we said, this is sort of how she connects to, I don't know, a, a notion of like freedom, but again, dehumanizing. But then she sees a baby. Laura looked straight into the bright eyes of the little baby near her. Only its small head showed above the basket's rim. Its hair was as black as a crow, and its eyes were black as a night when no stars shined. Those black eyes looked deep into Laura's eyes, and she looked deep into the blackness of that little baby's eyes, and she wanted that one little baby. Pa, she said, get me that little Indian baby. Hush, Laura, Pa told her sternly. The little baby was going by. Its head turned, and its eyes kept looking into Laura's eyes. Oh, I want it, I want it, Laura begged. The baby was going further and farther away, and it, but it did not stop looking back at Laura. It wants to stay with me, Laura begged. Please, Pa, please. Hush, Laura, Pa said. The Indian woman wants to keep her baby. <sighs> that, oh, man. when I read that, I just had to, like, pause and be like, what just happened? I know. I know. What a weird it's, scene. It's so gross. <laughs> It is. It's, it's she sounds like a kid in a toy store. Yeah. Or like or a kid who finds an animal yeah. in the woods. You yeah. know? I've lost count of how many times I, you know, found like a bird and nest and asked if I could have it. And mm-hmm. my dad said something along the lines of the bird doesn't want you to have the baby, you know. Right. I mean this language is like oh my god. Yeah, it's remarkably dehumanizing. Get and me it's... that little Indian baby. I want it. I want it. Right. It. Yeah. It wants to stay with me. Just this weird, like, sort of white savior Mm -hmm. element about it, you know? It's probably one of the grossest parts in the book. Yeah. Because these people are being driven out of their home by the presence of the Ingalls. And Laura sees this and... Her family sees this, and the reaction is, can I have one? (laughs) Yeah. It's just so interesting to me that Laura Ingalls Wilder included this in the story as the author. I, I I would love to be able to ask her what she thinks it means or what it contributes. Yeah. Because... I think this did happen. Like, everything in these books is not true to life, but 
in one of the early drafts of Little House on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder like wrote a little note, I guess, in the margin or whatever. Because there's a line in the book that says like, She'd never wanted anything as badly as she wanted that little Indian baby or whatever. And and adult Laura Ingalls Wilder, when she's writing the book, like writes a little parenthetical note or note in the margin that's like, and it's true, and I've never wanted anything as badly since. Like she remembers this very clearly. Oh God. Yeah. Like a doll. Yeah. Essentially. Anyway. Anyway, I don't even know how to segue <laughs> out of that. It was just so deeply distressing. Yeah, that's that's all I have to say about that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, but yeah, and then I think probably the worst part of all is that the next chapter opens with, I have to find this line because, aha, here it is. After the Indians had gone, a great peace settled on the prairie. Wow. That line really gets me. Like, I I don't know if the phrasing is meant to imply, like, this is just, like, the time that has passed, like, in the days afterwards, spring comes. But, I mean, it's very clearly phrased as... A causal relationship. Yes, exactly. That there's there's been some kind of purging of some sort of threat. And the notion that somehow this natural order has been restored to the prairie. But the Ingalls are about to get theirs. (laughs) (laughs) They're planting their garden and they're anticipating, quote, living like kings off the land. They're, sp- they're going to have all of these vegetables. But one morning, Mr. Scott and Mr. Edwards arrive with the news that the government is sending soldiers to move the white settlers out of the territory. And Pa is furious. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I mean, the irony, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that it should be so insulting. Because that's the, that's the yeah. thing that Pa mostly feels is the insult of being pushed off this land that he considers their home by the government. And there is no connection made whatsoever in his mind between this, what's happening to his family now, and this conversation he had with his daughter months earlier where he says, well, the government makes them move because it's, because we wanted the land. So you want to, you just want to shake him. I know. But pause he doesn't make this connection but he's like well then we're just gonna move out now i'm not gonna wait for the them to come and push me off of quote my land so in a matter of hours the family repacks the covered wagon which again you know shows you how little they have that this is they're able to move the following day yeah and they say goodbye to the little house As they drive off, Laura feels grateful that they are together and expresses excitement at the prospect of their future. Although, spoiler, their future is going to remain hard. Yeah, Um, and Mary's going to go blind, apparently. Things are going rough. Yeah. But, yeah, it's interesting because in the book it's explained that they have to leave because Pa has settled three miles over the line in quote-unquote Indian territory. So this is land that the government, the U.S. government has promised to belong to the native people and that white settlers aren't supposed to be in it. Pa knew that. He knew they were going to Indian territory, but he was under the impression that while they were there or right before they got there or after they'd only been there for a little while, it would be opened up to white settlers and then they would be like the first ones there and they would have their picking of the best land. Um, So he knew that they were going to 
Indian territory. He just, it's amazing actually, because it's an admission of his understanding that the treaties that the US government signed with these people are useless, right? Exactly. And that, but for him, it's not distressing. It's just opportunity. It's just right. a chance to exploit these people. And, and so then in that way, the government becomes the enemy because they're the ones who lied or who didn't stand up for the white settlers or whatever, which actually is not exactly historically accurate. That's not really why the Ingalls left, which I did a little research. And what did you find? The truth is a little more complicated. So it's in an article that was written in 2003 by Sharon Smolders um, in the Children's Literature Association Quarterly, and it's called, quote, The Only Good Indian, end quote, History, Race, and Representation in Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie. And she says, quote, but although Little House on the Prairie puts Washington in the villain's role for the alleged misleading of the settlers, Congress had, in July of 1870, enacted legislation enabling the removal of the Osage and the sale of their lands at $1.25 an acre. Despite considerable federal pressure, the Osage waited until September to sign the treaty that provided for the purchase of a reservation in Oklahoma. As a result, the struggle between settlers and natives that Wilder situates in the Kansas of 1873 to 1874 had concluded virtually by the fall of 1870 when the Osage left for the winter buffalo hunt, and definitively by the summer of 1871 when squatters on the former Osage Reserve filed the first claims. That Charles Ingalls was not among those claimants had little to do with the lies of the federal government. Instead, the family moved back to Wisconsin because... <laughs> This is a great name. Gustav Gustafsson. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a very Wisconsin name, if I've ever heard one. Amazing. So this Gustav character had agreed to purchase the little house in the big woods on installment, but then he voided the contract. And so they moved back to Wisconsin. So really the reason why they left, at least according to this scholar, is not because the federal government lied and kicked them off the land. It's because they had... They were in a financial bind and needed to move back to their house in Wisconsin, which is true. The Wilders did move back to Wisconsin for a few years after living in Kansas. So, but, it, you know, that decision to put the government in the villain seat mm -hmm. is something that comports with this novel's politics, which maybe that's a good segue into your fave is problematic. I love it. One of the things that's explored at length in Caroline Fraser's book, Prairie Fires, which was again published in 2017 and is a biography of Laura Wilder and her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane. So one thing that's explored at length is the politics of these two women and how their politics inflected these books that they wrote together. So Rose Wilder Lane was Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter she was a writer and journalist. I would put journalist in like quotation marks because she was a journalist in like the height of yellow journalism. So <laughs> she was saying a lot of things that weren't true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, she's a fascinating character. Seems deeply, deeply unpleasant. Very complicated. Mm -hmm. Obviously struggled with depression and possibly some other mental health issues, which is unfortunate. But 
by many accounts, just seemed to be a very cruel and not very empathetic person. Rose was, like I said, she was a writer. And so she was the one who encouraged her mother to write specifically about her mother's pioneer experiences. Rose um, became a very close editor of all the little house books. And there are even some passages in the books that some scholars believe to have been written exclusively by Rose. Especially there's like a scene in I think Little Town on the Prairie that's like very political about the 4th of July and America and independence and all of that. And um, people think that that was Rose Wilder Lane because it it doesn't really sound like Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it also really, really reflects Rose Lane's politics. Rose Wilder Lane was born in 1886, and she was the only child of Laura Ingalls Wilder who survived to adulthood. And she, along with two other female writers, Ayn Rand and Isabel Patterson, is noted as one of the founders of the American Libertarian Movement. Which Imagine is... that being your contribution to the world. <laughs> right? Disgusting. And you can kind of see traces of some of that in the Little House on the Prairie books. So Rose Wilder Lane was much more conservative and much more radical than her mother, but Laura Ingalls Wilder, by the time she was writing these books, was also quite conservative. Both of them disliked FDR. Rose Wilder Lane hated FDR, hoped that someone would kill him, and thought that he was, like, a dictator. Wanted to someone to kill him yeah she like thought it would be really great if you were assassinated wow yeah they hate yeah so they hated fdr they hated the new deal they hated anything that they thought could be perceived as socialism it's fascinating actually when you read the way that they think about and talk about this issue because it sounds so much like right-wing trolls today and Rose Wilder Lane is much more trolly than Laura Ingalls Wilder. Like, Laura Ingalls Wilder was more moderate and, I think, like, normal in her criticism. I mean, I don't agree with her, but she's not nearly as political as her daughter. And I, I question how conservative she even would be without her daughter's influence. Anyway, in the 1930s and beyond, Rose became increasingly conservative and subscribed to a highly anti-government, pro-individualist philosophy. She hated FDR, she hated the New Deal, she hated Social Security, etc. And she viewed her mother's books as kind of allegories about the importance of American self-reliance. And she saw these books as especially important during a time in American history when people were, quote-unquote, going soft and being overly reliant on the government. Wow. <laughs> I know. Oh my god. What a dick! <laughs> She is just awful. The myth of self-reliance is one of the most damaging things mm -hmm. that has ever, like, become such a huge part of American culture. It's so dangerous for the way we treat each other. No, and you're right. And actually, I want to step into that for a moment because I found an article about the myth of self-reliance and how it factors into these books. So it's it's called Little House on the Prairie and the Myth of Self-Reliance by Julie Tharp and Jeff Kleiman. And it was published in Transformations, the Journal of Inclusive Scholarship and Pedagogy in the spring of 2000. And so this was written in 2000, you know, so it's 
old, you know, a while, more, more than 20 years ago. But they say in recent years, this model, they talk about kind of the conservative Republican model of the per- importance of self-reliance, pulling oneself up by one's own bootstraps, not needing government handouts, etc. Um, this has been used to justify political agendas, which seek to cut off funding from single parent and poor families under the rationale that single parent families are, are abnormal or parasitic or lacking in virtues of hard work and independence that ideal families have. But the exaggerated image of self-reliance in the Little House books is a myth. The Engels and other families like them prospered in large part due to government aid, sometimes in astronomical amounts and with devastating results for other groups of people. And one of the things that they talk about is how the U.S. government invested an enormous amount of money in, quote-unquote, settling the Great Plains and subsidizing family farms. So, you know, anything from transportation options, building the railroad, building roads, and even access to water, you know, those were all dependent on federal funds in some way or another. And they talk also about the war that was waged against the native people on that land in order to clear the land for homesteads and how it would have cost billions of dollars in today's currency between purchasing the land, which actually didn't happen that often. More often, the tribes were just decimated, but they had to pay out benefits to veterans, white veterans of the Indian Wars, which alone amounted to $118 million between the years 1893 and 1957. They also had to pay for expenses for the military units and maintaining then numerous reservations and their inhabitants. And so the idea that the Ingalls just showed up in the West and made their own way (laughs) is ridiculous because the only reason they or any other way people were allowed to show up in the West is because the government had spent a ton of money removing people who were already there from that land and then building railroads and things like that to make mm-hmm. those lands profitable. Like, it's not... It's a myth. The, the It's a myth. And it's so... Um, it's very deeply ingrained in Pa. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has... What is it? He borrows nails, I think, from Mr. Edwards. Mm-hmm. And Ma is like, ugh, I hate the idea of us being, like, beholden to someone else, you know? And Pa's like, I've never been beholden to a man before. Like, wait, hang on. Like, aren't you having to, like, skip town because of, like, because of loans? Yeah. And also, like, this enti- the land that you're living on literally belonged to someone else. So, And yes, of course, this emphasis on self-reliance is particularly interesting because Laura Ingalls Wilder's politics had been more complicated, especially, like, earlier in her life before she was writing these books. Um, she advocated for and received federal farm loans. She had a job. Um, which was kind of unusual for the time, right? But Mm. she had a job where she worked to help farmers apply for and receive federal loans. So she, on some level, understood the value of help from the federal government. And I think also understood that they were in some way instrumental to the settlement of this land. Oh, yeah. And also Mary, when she got older, attended the Iowa College for the Blind by using government subsidies, and that's left out of the book. Rose must have hated that. I know. While we're on this theme of, like, modern conservatism. So, yeah, there's there's actually pretty direct links from these books to the Libertarian Party, which I wanted to talk about a bit. Christine Woodside wrote an article in September 2016 
for Politico called How Little House on the Prairie Built Modern Conservatism. And it was kind of a article about kind of summarizing the thesis of her book, which she has also written called Libertarians on the Prairie. So Woodside writes, amid the images of stoic optimism displayed by the Ingalls and Wilder families as they ride through storms and survive locust plagues, the authors deliver little lessons in vignettes and dialogue, extolling free market economics. You work hard, but you work as you please. You'll be free and independent, son, on a farm. And raising skepticism about government overreach. Why do they make a law that he's got to stay on a claim when he can't? For a country in the throes of the Depression, the Little House books delivered a clear and consistent message about the virtues of rugged individualism and not taking handouts from Washington. Yeah, and so that's another thing about these books that I think is really important, is understanding the context, the historical context in which they were written, because you can read them to try to understand something about the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, but you should also read them to learn something about the 1930s and the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she says, for the American conservative movement, the books were a part of a big shift away from emphasizing wealth and toward emphasizing the power of the individual to do what he or she wants. After Leora Ingalls Wilder died, Rose Wilder Lane inherited her estate and the copyrights and the rights to the Little House books. And so with that, with the royalties from the Little House books, Rose Lane helped fund a free market academy in Colorado called the Freedom School. And two of the people who attended the school were perhaps the most profoundly influential donors in modern conservatism, uh, Charles and David Koch. Oh my God. I know. I know. What could we accomplish if we could go back in time and delete Rose from existence? <laughs> a lot i'm just i'm just spitballing here (laughs) just throwing ideas out oh my god i know and then this kind of the libertarian intertwining with the little house books becomes even more gross when um you learn that rose lane mentored roger mcbride who was the libertarian candidate for president in 1976 and they were close friends for many years he referred to her as his grandmother they would exchange you know i guess letters about how awful like the new deal was (laughs) fun and then when okay so this is really interesting because in laura ingles wilder's reel she said that her estate and the copyrights for her books would go to rose lane Rose Lane never had any children. And so after Rose died, then the copyrights to the books and all of the royalty money, which was a lot of money, was supposed to go to a public library because Laura Ingalls Wilder loved public libraries because she didn't have access to them growing up. And when she went to them as an adult, she thought they were really wonderful, which they are. But when Lane died in 1968, she ignored her mother's wishes and willed Roger McBride, this libertarian. Oh, my God. uh, The Little House royalties. And scholars have speculated this might have helped fund his campaign for president, including his plane. And they also gave him greater means to pursue his political goals. And McBride understood the value of the Little House brand. And it was he who published the unedited last book, The Last Four Years, which is a draft that Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote and then didn't publish because she didn't want to publish it. She didn't think it was that good. 
McBride, after Rose and Lauren Goes Wilder were dead, he was like, hey, we've got this manuscript, you know, let's sell Motherfucker. this. Motherfucker. You know, which, it, um, so now there's like this weird addendum where you have the series as Laura Ingalls Wilder envisioned it and wrote it and felt like she had completed it and done exactly what she set out to do. And then this guy a few decades later is like, I'm going to publish your draft, which as someone who writes the thought of like someone going yeah. into like my files and publishing something that I decided wasn't right to be published. It feels incredibly invasive and gross, but anyway, especially when that, book is a memoir about the first four years of your marriage which were incredibly traumatic and included the loss of oh a my child and also um almanzo becomes disabled um he has a stroke like a few years into their or, like maybe not even a few years into their marriage very very early into their marriage and is disabled for the rest of his life that's what's covered in that book and that's part of why Lori Ingalls wilder didn't want to actually publish it but mcbride but didn't she didn't care. really get a say in the end no, he also negotiated the sale of the story to the hugely successful television show, Little House on the Prairie, which we'll talk about. And Roger McBride died in 1995, and the royalties still are in his family. The library sued to try to get the rights to them back, but they didn't win. Ugh. Like, that, that is the worst possible turn of events, to be honest. Yeah. There's one point in one of her letters where Rose Wilder Lane says something along the lines of, like, I've never understood what people are talking about when they refer to their conscience. <laughs> well, there you go. Wow, imagine saying that out loud. I know. And it's it's worth mentioning also that like Rose Wilder Lane wrote wildly anti-Semitic things in her life and very racist too. So this is um this is a woman who I tried to view with a generous eye um, as best I could because she was obviously a very important figure in American literature and uh, in her role in shaping the Little House books. And I think she probably was a good editor, you know, but but oh my God, at what cost? <laughs> oh, yeah. she And oh she was my. just someone who was just cruel like i mean we're not even getting it like she yeah she stole she a different a stole is a strong word but she borrowed stories from her mother's life and then would write them into her own fiction and so like her mother was trying to publish these stories about what happened to her life and then was like in a competing marketplace with her daughter who had borrowed these stories Christ. and written them there is one point it's, it's really heartbreaking rose wilder lane wrote a novel about homesteading and she even used like she didn't even change the names like she used like the names like charles and caroline they were like the main characters in the book and then laura's working on and getting ready to release i think it was um little house on the prairie rose wilder lane never tells her mom that she's working on a book using the same material doesn't ask if it's okay doesn't warn her nothing Laura Ingalls Wilder finds out about it because she sees an advertisement for her daughter's book in, I think, like the Saturday Evening Post or something. And she's like, I don't understand. They've got it all wrong. Like, this isn't, they don't, because like, she's like, but it's the book, that book isn't supposed to come out this year. Like, that's my book and it's not ready yet. They have the date wrong. Like, it's, she's like, I don't understand how this oh mistake could have happened. Isn't that awful? Imagine dicking over your mother like this. Oh, my God. I know. 
it's awful. So now it is time for hopefully some levity from the child, the youth of America. So these are reviews that came from Dogo Books, and they are written by children. There was a couple reviews for Little House on the Prairie that I took, and then a few others from some other books in the Little House series, because I think they're relevant. Terry, would you like to read the first review from A-K-J-H-V-K-W-L-J-N-V? Sarah, please read it phonetically. That's Akjahavakwilijini. Um, who says, hated it, too long, too specific, though pretty long book. I'm sort of impressed, just being truthful here. (laughs) This is a roller coaster. One more time, hated it, too long, too specific, though pretty long book. I'm sort of impressed, just being truthful here. I guess impressed at the length of the book. I think that's what he's saying. Just be untruthful. <laughs> I love it. I will say that there what were parts say? of the book where I was like, this maybe is a little, like, too specific. I don't. Well, yeah, I was like, now I feel like I know how to build a house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't really actually care this much about door hinges. Like, I gotta be yes, honest. Yes, the door hinges. That's exactly. Wow, we knew exactly what party's referencing. Yeah. That part, if you guys read this book, feel, feel free to skip door hinges. Some chapters in these books, just as soon as you, like, see the title, you're like, is it worth it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of, like, how-to guides for doing things no one needs to know how to do anymore, so. Thank God. <laughs> um, our next review comes from Pretty Kitty One, who says, Little House on the Prairie was a very good book. Laura is a very curious girl who loves to explore, but Mary is a very quiet and mature, I guess she means mature, mature person. I like Laura because she's very curious and pretty. This book is really good. Three stars. <laughs> I think Laura would appreciate that, seeing as it's sort of her whole thing that she's not pretty. Right? At least like in comparison to Mary. Yeah, she's never described uh, as pretty, but it's interesting that Pretty Kitty has decided that she is. Yeah, Pretty Kitty, I love that. Good for you. I think there are other things we could, like, fixate on about Laura. I liked Laura as a kid because I was, like, for the same reason I liked, like, Ramona Quimby. Because mm-hmm. she was just, like, kind of bad. You know? Yeah. No, I, actually... I mean, she never actually did anything wrong, but no. I liked kids who self-identified as shitty. <laughs> I think there's actually a lot that's really cute about Laura. Her personality and her interests and her curiosities. Yeah. When she's not being super racist. One more sidebar. I don't think this makes it into any of the books, but there is a, apparently when the real Laura Ingalls Wilder was a little was a kid when she was in school. I think this is when she was in school. There was like a creepy older teacher who would like to you know like touch the girls' hands, like kind of like grab their hands or hold oh. their hands in class. And so Laura would sneak needles into her fist so that when he would grab her, oh hand, my god. <laughs> He would get stabbed. The dedication. Oh, I love it. Like, so I guess just like in her hand, like maybe poking out from yeah. like between her knuckles or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I wish she would have included that in one of the books. I know. Oh, man. Our next review is for Little House in the Big Woods from Lego Batman. That's cute. Lego Batman says, I liked how they had their own house already. I liked the posh shot game to eat. 
It was awesome. Four stars. <laughs> what a simple bar. I, lo- I like that they had their own house already. What? <laughs> I guess he was bored by the description of how to build a house. And you know what? Fair. I Yeah, I guess. This book... Little House in the Big Woods comes before Little House on the Prairie, so I don't know if he'd already read Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. Or if he just is really into houses and was just glad that we were just, like, already there, like, at the start of it. Maybe every book he reads, if there's a house in it, he's already like, this is so good. (laughs) Great start. You know? Berenstain Bears, they've got a house already. (laughs) No long scene where they build it. It's good. I'm happy for you, Lego Batman. Fantasy Reader 65 says, in regard to On the Banks of Plum Creek, this book might be my favorite of the Little House series, but I have not finished the series yet. Laura Ingalls' life is way different than what we have to do now. They has different ways of doing everything. They also drank milk straight from the cow. I would do that if the milk was cold, but the milk is actually 90 degrees when it comes out of the cow. But raw milk from the cow is actually very good for you, because when they pasteurize it, they're taking out all the good nutrients that we need. You guys should check into drinking raw milk. We get ours from a local dairy. Five stars. (laughs) What happened to the original plot? (laughs) You can feel it all just sort of unraveling. Also, it's particularly funny, too, because raw milk is actually illegal in a lot of places. It is, yeah. Not everyone can get it from the local dairy, and I wonder if the local dairy she gets it from is doing it illegally, in which case she probably shouldn't be posting about it. Fantasy Reader 65, um, (laughs) someone check in on them. Now it's time for our next segment, The Book Was Better. There was a TV show loosely based on Little House on the Prairie that aired from 1974 to 1983, and it starred Michael Landon as Pa, and Melissa Gilbert as Laura, also Karen Grassle and Melissa Sue Anderson. And in the series, they were living on a farm in Plum Creek near Walnut Grove, Minnesota in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. And Michael Landon was kind of the driving force behind the show. He starred as Pa. He also produced the series and wrote and directed many of the episodes and is remembered very fondly by the cast as kind of being the heart of the show. I remember watching this show sometimes as a kid because it would play in reruns on cable and my grandma would record it on VHS tapes for me and my sister and then when we came to visit we would watch it. Um, Amazing. That's a very (laughs) grandma thing to do. Yeah. And I liked it as a kid. I think I, I didn't love it, but I liked it. I recently rewatched a few episodes of it for research purposes. And it is interesting because it starts off quite loyal to the books. Like the first episode, like I said, is like basically just Little House on the Prairie in TV show form. I will say that it's it's an hour and a half, I think, or more than that maybe, and you feel every minute of them crawling <laughs> by. <laughs> It does that thing that they do a lot in, like, 1970s TV dramas where it's just, like, slow close-ups on people's faces. Just so much gazing and staring and reacting. Exhausting. With with a more efficient editor, that thing could have been half as long. But then the series really, like, spirals off into its own thing and basically isn't... I mean, it's only tangentially connected to the books in the sense that the characters are characters in the books, but 
I mean, like Laura gets kidnapped at one point. They end the series oh, by blowing God. the entire town up with dynamite. Like, things go off the rails. Uh, wait, hang on. You can't just say that and then, like, not elaborate a little. Why? I haven't seen the <laughs> finale. I read about it. Apparently, there's, like, a railroad tycoon who owns the town. The townspeople want to, like, band together to buy the town from him, but he won't sell it. And so then they're like, fine, we'll just blow up your town. And so then they blow up every building except for, I think, the church. Oh, my God. I know. And apparently, some people think that, that they did that because Michael Landon didn't want any future shows or movies to use the sets. Which is like, okay, okay but you could also dynamite it off camera. I don't know. But yeah, apparently, yeah, it was right. like, apparently <laughs> like they all just like stood around. The whole cast and crew just like stood around weeping on the last day while their entire set blew up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> of comedy <laughs> it sounds like something out of parks and rec or arrested <laughs> development that's funny i would give anything to watch that <laughs> but like paul why'd you do it paul why'd you do it paul oh not the church paul anyway anyway um another fun little nugget i found when I was researching the TV show is this quote from New York Magazine from July 1980. It was a profile of Ronald Reagan when he was running for president. And the piece opens with this quote, which I think is incredible. Ronald Reagan, says Ronald Reagan, is a nice, well-intentioned man who loves his family, likes to consult his horoscope before making major decisions, and cries when he watches Little House on the Prairie. So that was how Ronald Reagan self-described himself to New York Magazine in 1980. Uh, uh. Um, I'm sorry, there is nothing more malevolent than describing yourself as (laughs) (laughs) well-intentioned. Ronald Reagan loved Little House on the Prairie, allegedly, which makes sense if you think about the kind of mythology that it promotes about American That's like his whole vibe. That's his whole thing. And it also makes sense that this is a show that would become popular in the 1970s and 80s with the backlash to the Great Society, the civil rights movement, and also the perceived lawlessness of the Watergate era. Yeah, similarly to how the 19s, how these books were presented as like kind of a comfort and an antidote to contemporary times in the 1930s, they did the same in the 1970s. And it uh, doesn't say great things about where we are right now because they're rebooting the show. So, ah, shit. I know. That's a sure sign. I don't even need to check my horoscope. That's all the information I need about where we are. Also fascinating that um, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan were like big into astrology. He apparently consulted this one astrologist. Astrologer? What's the word? I don't. Who cares? (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yeah, Reagan consulted this one astrologer, astrologist, before making, like, any major decisions as president. That would determine, like, what time of day he would give speeches and stuff. Isn't that so weird? Oh, my God. And the the astrologer, she was, like, interviewed, and she's like, yeah, I definitely would have predicted, like, when he got shot, but uh, I was just (laughs) so busy that day, I didn't check. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, man. There's also a Little House on the Prairie miniseries that was made in 2005 by Disney. I have not seen it. To my knowledge, no one has. (laughs) (laughs) To my knowledge, no one has. Yeah, I think maybe now what there is to talk about is what is the value of this book, if there is any value in this book. Yeah. Well, this uh, makes me think of a conversation I had with my mom last night when I was talking to her because my mom had never read Little House on the Prairie or for that matter, Little House in the Big Woods. So we were having like a conversation about that. My mom was like, so what do you do? Because I was talking about the books, you know, and I was like, yeah, I mean, they're they're really racist. You know? mm-hmm. Like the depictions of like the Osage people are downright gross. The entire mentality, the lesson behind the whole thing is gross, you know? And my mom was like, so what do you do like if your kid wants to read it? And I was like, well, I mean... Yeah, your kid can read it, but like you got to sit down with them and you got to talk about it, you know, and Mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't suggest that I don't think people should read it in school. I think they're especially with the publication of like Birch Park House, Mm -hmm. when there are so many good texts that are being written now that provide a more a real experience. You're absolutely right that if children are reading this book, there needs to be an adult in their life reading it with them and providing context and critique. I did. I read some articles that were written by parents talking about the approach that they took with the book. And, you know, some parents have said, like, that they would just redact the really racist paragraphs. That's not helpful, though. It's not helpful because the book is, I mean, it's a premise that's racist it it encompasses like a core yeah exactly but also i mean the book encompasses like this core belief Mm -hmm. about america as a country and if you try and cut those parts then right and you can't do that (laughs) no you can't do that and i think those parts are very instructive and important oh yeah because i think they are a really excellent teaching tool for children to talk to them about racism and i and i think even a child can read that and understand what's wrong with it you know mm-hmm. like the very animalistic descriptions like they might not understand the complexities of like manifest destiny and american myth making although you can certainly explain to them what it means to be removed from your land removed from your home forcibly but they can understand when a description of a person sounds like the description of an animal, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it's important to work through, if you're going to read the text with your kids, to work through it with them and then, like, provide interrogating questions <laughs> that ask your... Time for a book talk. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think if you're going to read this book with your children, you should view it really less as an opportunity to... To, to learn a factual history about pioneers and more to learn about as a tool to understand American racism. Mm-hmm. Because that's And the like, narrative around this time period. Right. There's, in the article that I mentioned earlier, uh, Little House on the Prairie and the Myth of Self-Reliance by Julie Tharp and Jeff Kleiman, they say, quote, we have to teach students critical reading skills that include looking at a book for how it represents the attitudes of an era as opposed to or in addition to the history or reality of an era. Seeing this novel as a product of the New Deal political conflict, for instance, 
as situated within the context of an ongoing and lively debate, may actually breathe new life and new purpose into literary studies. Connecting the book's influence to decisions that are being made for us today would help people understand how the culture is literally shaped by works of art. Which I think is very well said. Well Good job. said. Yeah, I mean, definitely the book can be an entry point for discussions around racism. And it's, it's so interesting because Laura is actually the one who starts the conversation. You know, she's the one who asks yeah. the question, why are we here if we don't like them? <laughs> if you don't like these people. Yeah. To which Ma says something along the lines of, shut up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we should also mention that so in 2018, the U.S. Association for Library Service to Children removed Laura Ingalls Wilder's name from one of its awards over her book's racist views and language. The medal was renamed the Children's Literature Legacy Award. And the ALSC, a division of the American Library Association, said Wilder's novels and, quote, expressions of stereotypical attitudes were inconsistent with ALSC's core values. And so that kind of prompted this renewed conversation in culture about Laura Ingalls Wilder and also about like what do we do with these children's classics that are racist this is of course something that's been brought up again with Dr. Seuss recently where yeah a bunch of conservatives are like wanting to read their kids racist Dr. Seuss books for some reason yeah they're really excited about it too yeah and to kind of put a point on that topic Amy S. Fatzinger wrote a really instructive article in the Atlantic in September 2018 called Learning from Laura Ingalls Wilder. And she says, the joint statement from the ALSC and the American Library Association, which critiques the quote dated cultural attitudes in Wilder's novels, perhaps implies that representations of native people in American popular culture have come a long way since the author's time. But this is not so. Eight decades after the series' publication, Native people are still most often shown in historic settings or as mascots in mainstream media. Stories that do feature Native characters tend to deny or downplay the acts of genocide committed against them, and rarely are they portrayed with individuality or depth. That, and that was something that stuck out to me as problematic about the ALSC statement was like, they said that the books contain dated cultural attitudes and it's like (laughs) regrettably not really (laughs) and also those attitudes were super hurtful and damaging and violent at At the time time. (laughs) yeah we didn't even talk about this because it got edited out but the first version of this book that was published there's a sentence early on in the book that talks about how they're going to be leaving wisconsin to go to kansas and that they're going to go to a land where there are no people, period, only Indians. And that stays in the book for, I think, at least 20 years. And then someone writes to the publisher, and I believe it's like a parent of a Native American child, and is like, my kid went to school and the teacher read them this book and they were distressed by this sentence. And the publisher was like, oh yeah, you're right. And this was like in the 50s, I think the publisher was like, oh yeah, oops. And then she sent it to Laura Ingalls Wilder and Laura was like, oh yeah, that was a silly blunder. I'm sorry, of course, of course Indians are people. And and so then they changed it to there were no settlers, only Indians. 
So this is all to say that if a teacher doesn't want to read this book to their class, that's really okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Don't. You don't gotta. Don't feel pressured. I, I feel unfortunate that we didn't really have much time to talk about the book's virtues because usually we like to talk about beautiful passages or descriptions that we really liked but honestly that stuff just is so overshadowed by the stuff that we had to talk about now that yeah so i would we would have been doing a disservice if yeah <laughs> i will say that like i do think that laura ingalls wilder is a gifted naturalist writer i think she's very good at describing the natural world and I mean, clearly has a deep love and appreciation for it. Unfortunately, she's also got a lot of other problems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Um, all right. Could are we ready to rate this book? I think we are. We will be rating this book out of tin cups. Can you imagine having a tin cup all your own, Sarah? Can you imagine having can 10 of them? It? This book can't. Oh, wow. This book is not a 10 out of 10. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give this book uh, five out of ten tin cups. I would also give it five out of ten tin cups for the reasons we've explained. Yeah, well, Sarah, if they want to hear more, where can they find us? So you all can find us on reading underscore recess on Instagram and Twitter, or you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Reading During Recess, and we hope to hear from you. Oh, yeah, please also rate, subscribe, review. We love hearing from you guys. We love you guys. Thank you so much. And to all you raw milk drinkers out there, stay reading. <laughs>